precious uh, little ones. The Lord bless you and keep you now and forever. So adorable. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's so good to see all of you here this morning. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with uh, loved ones, family, and friends. It is so good to see you this morning, and it's good to see our Pastor Ray. He's back, and Ruth. Yes, they were out for a while. They were sick for a long time. Well, it seems like a long time, a couple of weeks. Ruth was saying in the the 25 years that they've been married, she has never seen her husband this ill. But uh, we are thankful for his healing grace and restorative grace. Uh, For the sake of time, we're going to skip over our our values, and we're going to go right into God's Word. That's all right. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And when you're there, if you are able, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we're only going to read a few few verses and not the whole. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 6. Now it's a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Yes, God, we enter your courts this morning. God, with praise and thanksgiving. Father, we really do have so much to be thankful for. And God, we thank you most of all for Christ, for giving us your son. And Lord, who we are in Christ, the life that we have in him. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Whatever our lot, whatever season we find ourselves in, God, we thank you that you are faithful to your word in our lives. And I pray, God, that you would help us all to see that this morning. God, wherever we are, whatever season we're in, I pray, God, that you would show us Christ. that you would, God, cause us to see and savor your love and your good plans for us. And so, God, would you go beyond me and what I'm capable of? God, this is your word. So, Holy Spirit, would you just take your word and through this feeble vessel, God, would you plant your word in every heart and mind in this room, And within the sound of my voice. So Lord, just like we sing, would you be magnified? Oh God, please. Magnify your son. Magnify Christ. That in him we might have life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I want to address a specific demographic in the church. And it is a demographic that is often misunderstood, mischaracterized, 
and even misled by well-meaning Christians. The group, as you may have guessed from the passage, is the singles. Today I want to address the single Christian. And this is a demographic that is growing larger by the day, including in our churches. Numbers tell us that this group is growing at an unprecedented rate in American history. A little over 100 years ago, 90-plus percent of the adult population in the U.S. was married. Most people were marrying young. In fact, adulthood and marriage were basically synonymous, and divorce was very uncommon, as well as singleness. Now, fast forward 100-plus years, and you have a much different picture. Nearly half of the adult population today is unmarried. Many have never been married and are waiting longer to get married. In 1956, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the average age at which a man married for the first time was 22.5. For women, it was 20.1. Those numbers have climbed steadily for years. Today, the average age at which a man gets married is 30.5 and 28.6 for the woman. And it's continuing to climb. Now, there are a number of reasons for why people are delaying marriage, why they're getting married later and later. I just read an interesting article this week on the Hill entitled, Americans are waiting longer and longer to get married, and it cites three primary reasons, and here's the first one. Young adults have come to view marriage as a capstone event, meaning couples used to marry and build a life together. Now they build a life first, then they get married. So first I got to get a job, a well-paying one. Then I got to be financially stable, and I got to have a place of my own. Then I'll look to get married. The second reason is the creation of a new life stage coined emerging adulthood. I had never heard of this before I read this. But emerging adulthood, this is a new stage between adolescence and young adulthood, many whom are without jobs and still living with their parents. So there's this lengthening of adolescence, particularly in men. Where you have 20-somethings playing video games at home, feeling less and less inclined to take on the responsibilities that come with starting a family. And the third trend, away from early marriage, has a great deal to do with sex. Meaning, not so long ago, sex outside of marriage was considered taboo in American American society. That is no longer the case. That stigma has almost completely faded away along with having children out of wedlock. Susan Brown, professor of sociology at Bowling Green University, says it used to be you dated, then you got married. Then it was you dated, then you lived together, and then you got married. She goes on to say that the impulse to get married gave way to the growing consensus that you can now enjoy many of the benefits of marriage without being married, so why get married? So because of such reasons, people today are getting married later and later, and they are getting married less as a whole. 
Now, with that said, for many, this is not a matter of choice. Meaning they are not choosing to stay single. Truth is, many singles would prefer not to be single. And this is especially true in the church. If it were up to them, if they had it their own way, they'd be married, no question. Recent statistics show that a great percentage of people in the church desire marriage, even feel called to marriage, but are having to wait longer to experience it. It should not be surprising then to discover that this growing phenomenon is hard. It's hard on a lot of Christian single men and women. Greg Morris writes about this in Desiring God. He says, you're quite wrong, I corrected my friend. I do believe in purgatory. It's called Christian singleness. (laughs) If I thought I meant it merely in just the nervous laugh that followed gave me away, I did think singleness was kind of a purgatory. In my experience, most who were there didn't choose to be. If you were there, you prayed you would leave soon. And Christians who had escaped it constantly remind you that it was ultimately for your good. To that point, singleness had been the silent struggle. And he's not the only one. My guess is that a good number of us who are single can relate to what Greg Morse writes. It feels like a purgatory. You're stuck in a place you would rather not be. While, you're, while you see friend after friend leave through marriage, And so you struggle in silence. You suffer in secret as you battle loneliness and longing. And it certainly doesn't help when everyone and their mother tries to fix you up. As if something was wrong with you, as if you needed the help. I heard of a guy who got so sick of the old lady that his church say to him at every wedding, don't worry, you're next. That he started saying to them at every funeral, don't worry, you're next. (laughs) That is mean. Paige Benton Brown, in her article, Singled Out by God for Good, lists some of the common ways Christians try to explain singleness. Here's one. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. Ever hear that one? As though God's blessings are earned by our contentment. You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our narrow parameters and need us to broaden them so that he can bless us. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful, as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. And Tim Keller says this, under all these statements is the premise that a single life is a second-class life, a state of deprivation for people not yet fully formed for marriage. But that is a total departure from what this book says about singleness. Paul here in our passage says stuff about singleness that is completely counter to how many people today view it. But before we get into that, I want to say a couple of things first. To the marrieds in the room, please don't tune me out. Married folk, don't tune me out. 
Don't say I'm not married and this has nothing to do with me so I can check out this morning. No, you can't. You need to hear this because we need to learn how to come around and support and strengthen and serve our single brothers and sisters. Amen. The picture of discipleship that we see in the Bible is where older men are training up the younger ones. Older women, the younger ones. Not just in learning the scriptures, but helping them to apply the scriptures to their lives. So this message is most definitely for you. And to the singles in the room, I want to say this. I know you've heard every Christian cliche about how wonderful the single life is. And some of you may have a bitter aversion to married people offering you unsolicited advice or trying to encourage you by telling you that your special person is right around the corner. Some of you may be bitter towards God. There's a part of you that feels resentful towards him. It feels like he's depriving you of something good, something that your heart longs for, and you can't understand why. I know there are all kinds of feelings and emotions and thoughts surrounding this issue. But I ask you today to hear me out. Allow me to share some things that God has said about singleness that you may not have considered, at least not in a while. And my hope is that it creates in you a greater understanding of what God may be up to in your life, what God may be doing And that it will lead to a greater vision of how you might use your life as a single Christian for his glory. Now Paul here in chapter 7 is addressing specific issues. Specific questions regarding marriage, divorce, and singleness to a very immature church in a pagan city that was mired in sexual immorality and licentiousness. And he focuses on the marriage in verses 1 through 24. And then starting in verse 25, he turns his attention to the singles. But before he does, he establishes an important foundational truth that undergirds the picture of singleness in the truth starting with this. Both singleness and marriage are good. This is key. Both singleness and marriage are good. Paul in no way denounces the institution of marriage. No, he affirms it. Both here in this passage and elsewhere, for example, Ephesians 5, where he tells us that marriage is a good thing because it gives us a picture of what? Covenant. It's a living illustration of the covenant that Jesus entered into with us, his bride, the church. Now here... Paul affirms the goodness of singleness. In fact, look again at what he says in verse 6. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain. It is good for them to remain single as I am. That statement may not seem like a big deal to us in a society where almost half the people are single. But you got to understand that when Paul made that statement in that day, it was radical. It was revolutionary. Why? 
Because in those days, and in particular the Old Testament, singleness was not something that was seen as a good thing. No, it was viewed as a curse. It was something that God's people despised. And it all began in the garden in Genesis chapter 1. God made man and woman in his image, and he gave them a command that the Jews would take very seriously. And what is the command? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Translation, make babies. Make a lot of babies. Fill the earth with my image bearers and glorify my name through multiplication. And that takes place how? Through marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. This is why childbearing was seen as a sign of God's blessing and barrenness a sign of his curse. And to remain single was to disobey the command to be fruitful and multiply and to under God's, undermine God's blessing because it was through your offspring that your name would continue. That's why Deuteronomy 26.5 says that if you don't have a child, your name will be cut off from Israel. So to be single meant that you, you would be blotted out from the people of God. That means you don't have a place among God's people. And when you look at the people that were single in the Old Testament, you had three primary groups. The diseased, the widows, and the eunuchs. Those who had leprosy and were unmarried because they were untouchable. Those whose husbands had died. And those who had their sexual capacities removed, physically taken away, so that they could not bear children. This was the picture of the single individual in the Old Testament. Now here comes Paul saying, no, singleness is a good thing. Just as marriage is good, so is singleness. Now how? How can he say that? Here's how. Because of a single unmarried man named Jesus. He changed everything. And when Jesus enters the scene, the picture of singleness in the Old Testament is radically transformed. It's flipped on its head, and everything changes in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophetic chapter on the Messiah, the suffering servant, and his work on the cross. And verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we, by his stripes we are healed. And verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. So he was cut off for our sake. He became our curse. And watch this, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. What do you mean he shall see his offspring? He was a single man. He didn't have offspring. 
The picture in Isaiah 53 gives, the picture that it gives us is that the offspring of Christ are those whose sins have been forgiven. It's a spiritual offspring, not a physical one. You see, Jesus' descendants are those whose sins have been atoned through his death on the cross, and that changed everything. How? Here's how. The kingdom of God will no longer advance through physical procreation, but through spiritual regeneration. You are no longer physically born into God's people. You are now spiritually reborn. That's how you became a part of God's people. That's how you became a child of God, by faith in Christ. This is why when you get to Isaiah 54, the very next chapter, it says, Sing, O barren woman. Sing who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, why? For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. This is incredible. This is huge. Oh, barren woman, you can sing. Why? Because your barrenness is no longer a curse, that's why. Because the kingdom of God will not advance through you making babies. It will now advance through spiritual birth through you. And to the women in the room who are struggling to have children, I hope you sing. Oh, sister, I hope you sing. Because there's a picture of reproduction in your life that far supersedes that which can happen physically. Then you go over to Isaiah 56, two more chapters, and it says in verse 3, And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Why? Verse 5. For I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So now there's hope for the eunuch who will never marry and have children. They will never be cut off. Now check this out. This is so dope. In Acts chapter 8, you see an Ethiopian eunuch reading the scriptures, and guess, book, guess which book of the Bible that he's reading, the Old Testament scriptures. The book of Isaiah, specifically the chapters about the eunuch. And so he's reading about the gospel in Isaiah, and he reads about the hope that is available to the eunuch in, in the Messiah, and he ends up putting his trust in Christ, and he is baptized right there and then by Philip in the water. Then you get to Matthew 19, and we see Jesus in an encounter with the Pharisees. And they're talked about marriage and divorce, and that's when Jesus speaks of those who embrace their singleness for the glory of God. He talks about eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So these are voluntary eunuchs. People who chose to remain single and celibate for the sake of God's kingdom, and Jesus elevates them. He removes the stigma and he raises them up that singleness is not a curse. That they are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. This is why Paul can say singleness is a good thing. Because Jesus changed everything. Because of the cross, listen to me. Because of the cross, you are no longer defined by your offspring whether you have physical children or not. Because of the cross, you are no longer defined by your marital status, whether you are married or single. 
Because of the cross, you are now defined by one thing and one thing only, and that's Christ. Who you are in Christ, that's what defines you. That you are the beloved of God. That you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You see, because of the cross, you are no longer completed through marriage. Marriage does not complete you. Please please hear this. A husband or a wife does not complete you. They don't. They won't. And they can't. Why? Because you are already complete in Christ. Oh, God, help us get this. God, help us get this. You are already complete in him. He completes you, not some man or woman. And I want to say this to my brothers and sisters in the room who struggle or experience same-sex attraction. And therefore, I've chosen to remain single and celebrate and do not see a place for marriage in your future. You are already complete in Christ. He completes you. He defines you. Not your desires, not your marital status, not your physical offspring. Christ defines you. Christ completes you. May you never forget that. This is why, guys, this is why there's no marriage in heaven. Think about it. If marriage was ultimate, why would it be left out for all eternity? Because when the new creation is consummated, the picture that the marriage pointed to will be fully realized when we are finally united with Christ, our bridegroom. Listen, in the happiest place in human history, in the most amazing place that we will ever be, there will be no weddings. There's not going to be any matrimony. Why? Because all of that will have found its fulfillment in Christ and in his presence. So as much as marriage was intended to be good, so is singleness. Well, not only is it a good thing, Paul tells us here in our passage that singleness is actually a gift. Just as marriage is a gift from God, so is singleness. Look at what he says again in verse 7. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, there's a whole bunch of discussion around what Paul means when he calls singleness a gift, right? Is it, are, we, are we talking about like a spiritual gift? Like, just like you have the teaching of gift of teaching, administration, giving, helps, mercy, hospitality, you have the gift of singleness. And this is where a lot of singles are asking themselves, how do you know if you have it? Do I have it? I mean, I'm still single. Maybe I have it. But the reality is that if we're honest, it's a gift we don't really want. Singleness is a gift. Thank you, but no. I don't want it. Return to sender. And we're just hoping, we're just praying that we don't have the gift. But when Paul calls singleness a gift, I don't believe he's referring to spiritual gifts. I say that because let's turn it around. How many married people you know wonder, do I have a gift of marriage? (laughs) Hmm, do I have a gift of marriage? No married person does that. No married person does that, right? Marriage is never mentioned in the Bible as a spiritual gift. It's just a gift from God for our good, and I think that's how we are to understand the gift of singleness. I believe what Paul is saying here is this. If you have the gift of singleness, 
You've been given that gift for the season of your life. And not necessarily something that will last your entire lifetime. Now that may very well be a possibility. But there may come a day when God exchanges a gift of singleness for the gift of marriage. And for some of us in this room, that may very well happen. And for those of us in the the room that are married, someday your spouse is going to die. Or someday you're going to die and your spouse who has the gift of marriage is going to exchange it for the gift of singleness. And if they choose to get remarried, they're going to exchange the gift of singleness for the gift of marriage. Do you see that? But what's important for us to get here is this. It is not a matter of exchanging an inferior gift for a superior gift. That is not what we're dealing with here. We're not exchanging an inferior gift for a superior gift. And when it comes to singleness... This is not a gift to be endured as we wait for something better. No, according to Paul, it may actually be the better gift. That's why he says repeatedly in this passage, it's better for you to not marry. He says, I wish you would remain as single as I am. And he tells us why, starting in verse 25. And he gives us a couple of advantages to being single. Look at verse 25. Look at what he says. Now concerning the betrothed, and the word betrothed here literally means in Greek, virgins. So he's referred to the unmarried. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think in view of of the present distress, It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Paul said, I want to spare you the troubles that come with marriage now the context here is really important okay he's not talking about marital troubles which is how this passage is usually taught that marriage is hard it's really hard it takes so much work and i i want to spare you of all the trouble that all the troubles that come with marriage that is not what paul is saying he's talking about worldly troubles Troubles in view of the present distress in verse 26. Now, what does he mean by the present distress? Well, we know that when Paul wrote the letter, it was not easy being a Christian. I mean, you had Nero, a madman who was feeding Christians to lions. And he was lighting up, he was lighting up Christians alive on crosses in his garden to light it up at night. So there was a ton of persecution and hardship for the believer. And speaking of persecution and hardship, you look at Paul's life and all that he went through, all that he endured for the faith. And can you imagine if he was married? Or imagine being married to someone like that. Imagine how difficult it would be. But that's not all. There was rampant immorality, rampant perversion. Rampant divorce and adultery in court. And Paul said at the the end of chapter 6, flee from that, run from that. And if you could do that as a single person, all the better. 
But the point that he's making here is this. There's enough trouble in the world as it is without having to add the stresses and the pressures that come with marriage on top of that. That's what Paul is saying. It's sort of like this. There are people that don't want to have kids because, the, because of the state that the world is in, which is pretty bad. And it's only going to get worse, right? And I know especially with this series on the last days, there are couples that are rethinking everything, man. Do we want to have kids? Do we want to bring kids into this world and where the world is headed? Now, whether you agree with that or not, I think that's Paul's logic here. He's saying there's enough trouble in the world as it is. So if you don't feel compelled to get married, if you don't feel a strong desire for marriage, don't do it. Spare yourself the troubles that come with being tied to a person on top of everything else that is happening in the world. And then he says in verse 29, look at what he says. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present world, for the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul saying here? What he's saying here is this. Whatever your lot, whatever situation you're in, you need to realize just how temporary all of this is. You have to realize, you have to understand, you have to grasp how temporary everything is. Whether you are married or single, the world has a way of making it seem as though this is all there is. That this life is all there is. YOLO, right? You only live once. I talked about this recently. I can't stand YOLO. I can't. Especially for the Christian, there is no YOLO, there's YAF. You actually live forever. (laughs) But the YOLO mindset says you only get one shot. You got one shot. This is all there is, so you better get married because you're never getting this chance again. Paul says, no, that's wrong. Paul says, that is completely incorrect. He says, whatever you don't get to experience down here, you're not missing out on anything. You're not missing out on anything. Why? Because a real version of that is coming. Remember that marriage is just a shadow. It's not the substance. The substance is what's coming. It's a marriage feast of the Lamb. And that's what's coming for you. And that's going to be more amazing, more spectacular than anything you can ever experience down here on earth. What Paul is exhorting us to do here is to think eternally. To think eternally. He's reminding us that life is short. It's so sticking short. And eternity is long. So focus on the long. And when you have an eternal perspective, man, that changes everything. Including your view of singleness. Stephen Whitmer writes this. One of the feelings I often experienced as a single person was the lack of contentment. Even some of my most enjoyable adventures and sweetest experiences were shot through with a longing to share them with someone else. 
He then says, the reason we grow discontent in our singleness is because that person looks so big and eternity looks so small. When our present circumstances look bigger than eternity, we've lost perspective. And when we lose perspective, we tend to load too much of our contentment onto something that was never designed to bear the weight. We look to a spouse, a friend, a vacation, or an accomplishment to give us the happiness they never can. If we're single and all we can see is our longing for a spouse rather than an eternity with Christ, we will become resentful or cynical or broken-hearted single. God is more concerned with a change in our perspective than a change in our marital status. If, If eternity is at the center and we don't have a husband, a wife, or children we are longing for, it will be painful. But we'll be okay. Because we know a perfect eternity is still ours. For many, not all singles, there will be moments and seasons of loneliness and longing times when it feels awkward to be the only single person at the table or at the party. But knowing our God and His final future for us, plus knowing ourselves in light of that future can produce a profound contentment in our present. good knowing what awaits me in the future knowing what awaits me in eternity knowing that this world in its present form is passing away that all of this is but a shadow of the substance that is found in christ i can be content i can i can be profoundly content right where i am right where god has me paul gives a second advantage to singleness starting in verse 32 I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Here's a second advantage that Paul gives. Singleness affords us undistracted affections and undivided devotion. It affords us undistracted affections and undivided devotion. Devotion. Now, this is not to say that a married person cannot have strong affections for the Lord or that they can lead a fully devoted life to Christ. Of course they can. But the truth of the matter is that married people are distracted. They are divided in their affections and in their devotion. They just are by virtue of being married. When I covenanted myself to Jean... I made a vow that only death will break. And as her husband, when it comes to the people in my life, she's first. She comes first, and everyone else is second, including my kids. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I love being married to Jean. I love, I can't imagine not being her husband. Really, next to Christ, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. But the fact remains that my heart and my mind are divided. 
No doubt about it. My marriage is a distraction. A God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-declaring distraction, (laughs) but a distraction nonetheless. Because there are things about my wife that I have to tend to as her husband. There's a marriage to maintain and build, and that really does take a lot of work, does it not? And there are a bunch of things about my wife, about my marriage, about my family, my kids that I'm anxious about. Like, am I, am I being a good husband to Jean? How am I doing as a dad? I carry these anxieties with me all the time as a married man, as a, as a husband, and as a father. But a single person doesn't have such anxieties and cares, at least not in the same way. Their attention isn't distracted and their devotion isn't divided. They can have an undivided heart and an undistracted mind when it comes to God and their service to Him. And this is nothing to sneeze at. This is a major, major advantage and something that is not to be taken lightly, especially when you consider the fact that this life is short. It is so frighteningly short And the single Christian is freed up. You are freed up to give yourself fully to the Lord without distraction, without division. And Paul says, if you ask me, that's the better option. Now, some of us hear that and go, okay, Paul, that's good for you. I'm so glad you lived that out. But I'll take the lesser option. Thank you. I feel you. I feel you. Because there was a time in my life when I thought the same. I wanted to get married. I longed to be married. And by God's grace, I did. But I want to close by giving a few encouragements, a few exhortations to the singles in the room who find themselves in that place. You hear what God's word says, and yet you desire. You desire for marriage, or you desire to be married. Here's what I would say to you. The first thing I want to say this. I encourage you to put your hope in God's sovereign love. I encourage you to put your hope in God's sovereign love for you. Guys, what if the issue here in 1 Corinthians 7 is not whether we're married or single, but whether or not we're content with the good gift that God has given us? What if the primary issue is our contentment? And if that's the case, and I believe it is, then contentment comes when we learn to trust in God's sovereign love and plan for our lives. And this is what we see all throughout this chapter. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him him there remain with God. God's sovereignty is all over this chapter. Now the question then becomes, will you trust in it? Will you choose to trust in God's sovereign plan, his sovereign love, his sovereign grace for you? Will you trust that God knows what he's doing? And if he has called you to be single at this moment, if that's the gift that God has given you for this season of your life, will you trust that God knows what he's doing? Because I believe that's where contentment will ultimately be found in trusting that God is in control 
But he's not just in control, he's good. He's a good father. He's a good father who always has my best interests at heart. And he is for me, he's not against me, and he has not forgotten me. Because guys, here's the danger, and we're all prone to this. The danger is that the grass is always greener on the other side, right? In other words, contentment is always out there. It's always wherever I'm not. And so many of us, so many people go through life saying, I'll be content when. I'll be content when I meet my person. I'll be content when I get married. I'll be content when I have kids. I'll be content when I achieve this kind of success. I'll be content when I make this much money. I'll be content when we're constantly looking for something outside, out there to make us happy. But God's word is clear. Contentment is never found in external circumstances. Hear me. The longings of our hearts, the longings of our hearts were never meant to be filled by external things. They were designed to be filled by the internal reality of Christ in our lives. Only Christ can truly make us happy. Only Christ can truly make us content. And regardless of our circumstances, the grass is always greener with him. So run to him. Devote yourself fully to him. Drink deeply from the fountain, the only fountain that can truly make you content, that can truly quench your thirst. Listen, if you're not content in singleness, you won't be content in marriage. I promise you this. If you're not content in singleness, you won't be content in marriage. A discontented single person will be a discontented married person. A spouse is not a contentment charm, and wedding vows are not a magic incantation that produces lifelong fulfillment. Ask anybody, anybody here that's been married for a while, and they will tell you. Only God does that. Solomon put it like this, God has put eternity in the heart of man. God has put eternity in your heart and mine. You know what that means? That means nothing temporal. however beautiful, however enticing, however appealing, however shiny, there's nothing temporal that can fill it. Only that which is eternal can, and that's God. Second, know that the single you will be the married you. Know that the single you will be the married you. Joining a gym won't instantly transform my body, right? Buying a guitar won't turn me into a musician. In the same way, getting married won't turn you into a good person or a better or a good spouse. You know, when I was single, I thought marriage was like this magic bullet that would suddenly transform my life. And I would add this newfound measure of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control like I'd never known before as a single man. I thought saying those magical words, I do, would cause me to see, see the world in a whole new, whole, whole new way, through a whole new set of lenses. And that I would be a much more loving person. Boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I wrong. Listen, marriage won't instantly change you. It'll only expose what's already in you. It doesn't change you. It only exposes what's already inside of you. 
here's why this matters. Here's why this is big. This matters because a lot of Christian singles live passive lives. There's often little to no no accountability in our lives. And so there are all kinds of bad habits and secret sins. A lot of Christian singles indulge in all kinds of sexual activity, all kinds of sexual immorality. And on that note, I want to say this. I want to urge the singles in this church, in a culture that tells us that our sexual desires are for us to fulfill however we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, I urge you to show that, no, there's a better way. And that's the way of Christ. That's the way of Christ. His ways are better. His ways lead to life and flourishing. And those desires that he has given us are to be expressed in the context of covenant marriage. I urge you to show the world that. We desperately need to see singles in the church demonstrating that. So single Christian, guard your heart. Guard your eyes. Guard your desires against anything that will take you away from God's good desires for you. Third and lastly, embrace the unique opportunities you have. as a single person. Embrace the unique opportunities that you have as a single person. You as a single person have a unique freedom that will allow you to live and serve in ways that are not always possible with a spouse and a family. So enjoy the life that you've been given. I love what Marshall Siegel says. One of the greatest spiritual gifts as a single person is your yes. Yes to a random phone conversation. Yes to coffee. Yes to help with the move. Yes to stepping in when someone's sick. Yes to a late night movie. You have the unbelievable freedom to say yes when married people can't even ask that question. Be willing to say yes and bless others even when you don't always feel like it. Just as you are free to say yes to more spontaneous things, you are also able to say yes to things that require more of you than a married person can afford. So dream bigger, more costly dreams. Start a daily prayer meeting or some regular outreach. Commit to multiple discipleship relationships. Organize a Christ-centered community service project. Do all of the above. You'd be surprised with God's Spirit in you and a resolve to spend your singleness well, how much you are truly capable of. I love that. I love that. And to be honest, I envy that. I envy the freedom and the opportunity that you have as a single person to go and do just about anything for the glory of God and for the good of others. Man, I envy that. Because I, as a married man, as a father, can't always do that. So my single Christian friend, go on trips. Not just vacations. Some of you do that really well. I'm talking about going on mission trips. Guys, go on mission trips. Hear me. This is a prime time. This is a prime time for you to go on missions. Go on short-term missions. Go on long-term missions. if, If you don't have anything holding you down, Oh, man, this is a prime time for you to commit to missions. Serve in the church. Are you serving? Serve in the church. Serve in the community. Build relationships. Build relationships with people, not just singles, 
but with married folk. This is important. Learn about marriage from those who are already there. Look for opportunities to ingratiate yourself, to, to, to be a regular part of a couple's life, and learn from them. Learn from their successes and failures. Learn what it means to be married, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. We need, we need examples of flawed but faithful marriages in our lives. But whatever you do, don't squander it. Don't squander the gift. Because you may not always have it. God may exchange it someday for the gift of marriage. And if he does, if God should lead you towards marriage, there may never be a time like the one you're enjoying right now. So maximize it. Oh, use it. Take advantage of it. Spend it for your joy, for the good of those around you, and the glory of our God. Paul in his letter to the Philippians said to live is Christ and to die is gain. He didn't say to live is to get married. He didn't say to live is to have kids. He didn't say to live is to find a one. No, he said to live is Christ. Period. Christ is life. He alone is life. He alone is contentment. He alone is fulfillment. And I hope and pray that we all know that life, whether we are married or single. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my single brothers and sisters in the room and within the sound of my voice. God, you know where they are. You know where they find themselves in this season of life, in this season of singleness. Father, would you help them to see that it really is a gift? It's a gift that you intended for their good and their contentment in this particular season. God, there are so many competing voices in this world. And God, I know for some of us, man, we're fighting expectations from our parents, from our relatives. from our friends, from our culture, on what it means to be single, I pray, God, that your voice would be the loudest, that your word would be the clearest, and that your design, your good design for us, God, that it would be the one that we embrace, that it would be the one, God, that we open and receive, trusting, that you know what you're doing. Trust in God that you love us, that you are for us, not against us. And trust in God that you have a sovereign plan. You've got a plan. Help us, God. Help my brothers and sisters to trust you in it. 
And so, Lord, I just pray your blessing. God, I speak your blessing. God, I, I speak your blessing over every single man and woman in this room. God, would you bless them? God, would you bless them, especially in this season? Father, as they battle loneliness, as they battle longing, oh God, would they know your nearness, that you are close, that God, you're not far, you're close, you are with them. Help them, God, to know it. And I pray, God, that you would grant them the grace to find their joy, their contentment, their purpose, and their fulfillment in you. in you knowing God that that is where it will be found so Lord we thank you for your work this morning God we thank you for your truth help us God not to walk in it for our joy and your glory in Christ's name